everybody. Good morning. Good to see you. It's been a minute um, with uh, the unexpected storm slash not storm uh, that we had last week. So uh, it is uh, great to be back together. Great to be in person. Great to see um, some familiar faces and uh, to welcome some guests this morning. Uh, my name is Josh. Uh, I have uh, the great privilege of uh, being a pastor here in our community. Uh, if you have been here uh, today, you're just walking in for the very first time, or if you've been here through all the seasons of reality, many that there have been, um, just welcome. Glad you're here. Thanks for uh, making space today uh, to worship with us. Well, I'm, I'm excited to dive into this new series um, uh, that uh, was just described by Nicole there, uh, the series on calling. Calling is uh, something near and dear to my heart, uh, something that I'm passionate about it, and uh, and I, I hope that um, this will be a, a support to some of you. I, I imagine that, you know, I think deep down all of us have this question. Why am I here? Like, is, is this all there is? Has anybody ever wondered, wrestled, felt some of these things? Just me? All right, this is going to be a great sermon for like four people. Um, no, I, you know, there's, I, th- I think at some level this is like one of the fundamental questions, right? One of the fundamental questions that we, that we sit with, that we wrestle with. And we live in a, a very interesting moment, uh, a moment where conversations about calling are everywhere, although not always under that specific language. Like there's talk of, of destiny, of manifesting, of self-actualization. Usually it is attached to like a coach or a course for who a low, low fee is going to help you sort out. Or not, usually it's not a low fee, actually. Usually they're pretty high. Um, who's going to help you to identify and sort out like, your purpose or go to that next level, right? But I believe calling is different from these. See, from my view, I think based on what scripture teaches us, every one of us here, me and you, every single one of us have a calling on our lives because there is a God who calls. Because there is a God who calls. I mean, this word call, like we're all familiar with, right? Uh, I've got a cell phone. You probably do too. I'm still old school. I'm like a millennial, so I pick up and call people instead of actually texting at least some of the time. Um, yeah, I'm getting thumbs down from people out here. We don't do that anymore. But, but once upon a time, perhaps you called people, right, uh, instead of just snapping or texting or whatever else is happening. And, and whenever we call someone, what are we doing? We're, we're reaching out for them. We're making a bid for connection and communication. We're trying to, to impart something from me uh, to you. This is what it means to call. But today, a lot of people are trying to arrive at calling without any kind of idea of call. It's all internal. It, it's all manufactured. See, in, in our secular moment today, people are trying to push away from any designer who would purpose your life in a particular way. They're trying to push back from moral absolutes that would say like that there is any kind of uh, specific way to live. But when we do that, we end up with a story in which we're nothing more than a collection of particles who arrived here by accident. And then where are we left when it comes to purpose? Well, in an atheistic frame, there, there can't really be one. Nothing unless we manufacture it ourselves. We have to, to somehow conjure it or, or to determine it for ourselves because there's nothing broadly outside of us that could, could be a durable framework that could actually hold a calling. 
But this is not the way that I believe it is for us as Christians. See, Osganis puts it this way. He said, there can be no calling without a caller. But for those of us who follow Jesus, for those of us who are believers, we believe that there, there is a calling beyond ourselves. There is someone who spoke the world into existence and, and who has designed us and invited us into a future. The world is, is not just bumbling along through happenstance. We're headed somewhere. And you have a specific part to play in that adventure. Because you don't have to manufacture it. It's not just up to you to go inside and, and determine calling. There is a voice that has called you, not only to himself, but towards a destiny. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at this unpacking. What does this mean? How do we discover and how do we live into the calling that is unique for, for you and for me and in this particular season of our lives? Man, I... I don't know about you, this gets me excited. I don't know, everybody else, anybody else here excited about this? Like, this is a cool, this is a cool thing. There's, there is something that you have been purposed to do. Now, I do want to make sure and level set with some expectations right up front here. I do not anticipate offering specific answers to which job you should take, who you should date, who your housemates should be. Unfortunately, in the way that God had designed things, he said some things to be sorted between you and the Holy Spirit. Like there is a responsibility here for you to learn how to listen to him and follow his leading. And unfortunately, that means that I, I do not have a magic eight ball to determine your destiny, right? Uh, I'm not going to get, even if I did, I wouldn't, I wouldn't steal from you the opportunity of discovering what it means to listen to God and respond to him. But I, I do think there's some things that are achievable in this series. I, I do think that uh, whether you're pretty clear on calling or whether you're just beginning to wrestle with it, that, that we can walk out of this conversation that we're starting today with a sharpened sense of clarity about our purpose in the world and in this moment in which we find ourselves. I, I think that we can offer some, some wayfinding signs, some direction on this journey as we wrestle with these questions. Why am I here? What is my life fundamentally about? I think that these questions have knowable answers because there is a God who designed you. And we're going to do that over these next five weeks by looking at the call of Moses in the book of Exodus, uh, as Nicole mentioned. So in chapter two of this book of Exodus, we meet our main character, Moses. And it, Moses arrives on the scene in a, in a minute of crisis, like things are not okay right now. Moses, we find, is a descendant of Abraham. And Abraham's family has, in this moment, migrated from their, their family home down to Egypt in order to escape a famine. By way of God's providence, everything starts out golden. This is going great. They are flourishing. People having babies, like the family's growing. Things are, things are great, right? But the more that Abraham's family flourishes in this new home, the more the Egyptian neighbors begin to look at these immigrants with some suspicion and increasingly contempt. They uh, aren't so excited about the flourishing of Abraham's family. In fact, it's, it's starting to make them feel insecure. And so... In this moment, uh, a new government comes into office and, and things go from bad to worse. In fact, they become so dire for Abraham's family that the Egyptian pharaoh or king uh, passes an edict that says that every Jewish boy that's born is to be drowned in the river. The Egyptians decree genocide. 
And then there's this crazy, wonderful story, which like, would be a whole series in itself. This is great. Uh, there's a couple of Hebrew midwives who are leading the resistance. These, Shippurah and Pura, names worth knowing. These, these ladies are awesome, okay? And they're like, forget the king. We're doing our thing. We're rescuing the babies, right? So they're out here rescuing babies, and through God's providence, uh, Moses gets saved, um, but he ends up floating in a river. You'll have to go back and read the story. We don't have time for everything here, but... It's not just uh, resistance within the Jewish community that, that creates this opportunity in God's providential plan, but it's also somebody from kind of the ruling oppressive state, right? This Egyptian princess also is out in the river with all her servants, and she sees this baby, and she has compassion. She takes mercy on this child and brings it into her home. And so in God's design, Moses ends up adopted into this Egyptian family, coming up in the court. He grows up in a space of, of privilege and security and safety uh, protected by this high-ranking Egyptian woman. And Moses has a fascinating story, a story that maybe some of you, maybe some of us can relate to. He's, he's a mixed kid, right? He is adopted. Uh, he's Jewish, but he grows up fully immersed in Egyptian culture. Uh, and, you know, from different lenses, lots of us have ways in which we can touch this story. Maybe uh, you were adopted. Maybe you grew up uh, biracial or as a third culture kid. Maybe in one way or another, you've had an experience where kind of you grew up in, in space that felt like someone else's. And, and this was Moses' story. Moses grows up in Egyptian culture, and, and without a doubt, I'm sure that, you know, he, he had it going on. Like, he had the clothes, he had the dialect, he, he knew all the cultural cues. He was just one of the guys. But then, as the story goes, we find that Moses comes of age, right? He grows up. And, and, and at a certain point in his development, in his journey, he starts to look around, and he says, like, actually, I'm not like everybody else around here, right? There's, is this... Is this really me or am I putting something on in order to, to fit in or to feel comfortable? Is this really my space? And Moses asking these questions, he, begins, he goes on a journey of identity to try and wrestle with like, well, who am I really? Where do I really fit? And this journey takes him beyond the palace. He, he goes out and he finds himself in the work camps with the slaves, observing the situation there with his uh, ethnic uh, brothers and sisters who are under oppression. And this is shocking to Moses. It's uncomfortable for him. He doesn't, he doesn't know what to do with the feelings that he's experiencing. But in, in a moment, he, he senses this, this rage boiling up in him. This isn't how it should be. This isn't okay. And so here we find Moses' first encounter of two encounters that will ultimately define his call. His first encounter is an encounter with injustice. Moses, out in these slave pits in the work camp, sees an Egyptian master abusing and oppressing a Hebrew man. And he steps in. That's not how it should be. And, and you know, he's brash. He's brazen. He's a young guy. He's used to coming up in privilege and power. He's used to being able to step in and fix problems. But he steps in here, and all of a sudden, it doesn't go how he thought. Before he knows it, he's killed a man. Of course, things begin to unravel from there. Moses, as he uh, uh, sits with the wake of this decision, word gets out. The Egyptian pharaoh or king finds out, and all of a sudden, perhaps far before Moses himself is ready, he finds himself at a watershed moment. In an instant, because of his stand with those who have been marginalized, Moses himself 
becomes marginalized and, and ends up fleeing for his life. He's running to just stay alive. Moses crosses the, the Sinai Peninsula and enters into Midian, which is what currently would be Saudi Arabia. He, he runs far away, and that might as well be the end of the story. Like Moses, you know, he, he saw a problem. He tried to stand up for somebody. He tried to step to a problem in the world. And man, did he face plant, splat, just like on Wipeout, right? It did not go well. He didn't help anybody. And now he describes himself as a stranger in a strange land. Like he's ostracized, he was never really connected to the Jewish people that he grew up, that, that were his family. And now the Egyptians kicked him out too. Moses, for his uh, trouble, for his effort, is ostracized. But through all of this, we see the hand of God moving. And the first thing that I really want you to notice in this story is that calling starts, even before it starts with us, it starts with God. We've already touched on this theme, haven't we? We said that, that, that you can't have calling without a caller, but, but there is one in this story who sees. We see in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23 that the Israelites groaned in their slavery, cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And then just a verse later, we see that God looked. God looked. Now, this word here, I'm just going to underline with a highlighter. If you've got in your, in your Bible or your iPhone or whatever it is, uh, underline the word look. This is the Hebrew word ra'ah, and it means to see or to look. It's not a super complicated word. It's the pretty common word for see, but I believe it's an anchor in this text this morning. See, because it's the same word that was used a moment ago when it said uh, that Moses saw the oppression of his brothers and sisters. Moses saw something and was disturbed by it. He didn't quite know what to do with it and ended up acting out in ways that were counterproductive. But Moses saw something. But it wasn't just Moses who saw something. God also saw something. He looked. He observed. He understood and discerned what was at play here. And for God, this was not okay. This was not right. God was disturbed and bothered just as Moses had been. And you know, I think sometimes this is surprising. I think sometimes when we're in the, in the meat of it, it feels like, God, do you even care about stuff? Right? The, the, the people of Israel had been living under this this whole time. Like from the time Moses is born to the time he crumbs of age. And now we fast forward like, it's been a minute. Right? Each day they're going out into the fields and working, getting beat, struggling. And they must have thought long ago, man, I don't know what happened. We have these stories of Abraham and Isaac, but God... God's forgotten us. We've been abandoned. This just is what it is. But along the way, God was paying attention. He was looking, not in the time they would have preferred, for sure. But God saw, and he responded. And this is where we jump forward to chapter 3, and, and we find Moses' second encounter. So initially, we see Moses encounters injustice in Egypt, and then now Moses has a second encounter. And this happens as Moses, we find, is tending his flock in the wilderness of Midian. Now, it has been, since Moses' first encounter, 40 years. 40. Like, that's a minute. And, and basically nothing has happened. Like, uh, okay, so the guy, like, got married, and he had a family, and he learned to be a shepherd. Like, there were some things that happened. But basically nothing happened, right? This guy, I mean... This dude was a prince. He was legit. He was taking on oppression. He was, 
he was the man, right? And then, like, he flees for his life, and Shepard is a significant downgrade from Prince, if you didn't know, right? He's now in the middle of the wilderness. We find here it says that he is taking care of Jethro's flock. That's his father-in-law. The dude works for his in-laws 40 years later, hasn't even gotten his own business off the ground. I mean, come on, Moses. Like, it's, this dude's struggling out here, right? And, and he's out in the wilderness with a bunch of sheep. I imagine it does not smell very good. But as Moses is going through kind of his ordinary day, his every day, something happens. See, God knew that once upon a time at least, Moses had been a man who had turned aside, who had been willing to be interrupted, who had been willing to to actually leave the palace and, and go out to the place where the problems were most manifest and most acute. He was someone who had been concerned, and as God himself also was looking and was concerned, he, his thoughts ran to Moses. And, and interestingly enough, God comes in, and in this story, this is not an Apostle Paul situation where, like, the presence of God just knocks you straight to the floor, and, like, you're like, whoa, Jesus, right? This is, uh, interestingly, God initially responds with a sign. Now, uh, I, together with Mandy and Robert and a few of us, were on the prayer call uh, this Thursday that we do every Thursday morning. We were talking about this text, and Robert made a very good point, uh, which he said, you're going into a series on calling, and we're talking about Moses. I'm not sure that I want to learn calling from somebody who literally had, like, an angelic visitation in a burning bush, right? That's, you know, maybe not a one-to-one with our experience, right? That's, like, doesn't map exactly. So, fair point right? Okay, I I take that point. I did not change the sermon series nonetheless. Um, But I do think there's something that we can notice, even if it's perhaps not in the way that we would prefer. Because how many of you would prefer? Well, well, let's just do a show of hands. How many of you feel like at, at some point in your life, or maybe still today, you have really wrestled with calling and a question of like, what am I supposed to be about? What am I supposed to be doing in the world? A bunch of us, right? And how many of you would have, like, in that space, really appreciated it if God would have just been like, here is a signed letter to you with, like, action steps? Yes, Matt, it's like, yes, why can't we get that, right? Why can't we get, like, the full, clear, like, step one, step two, step three, like, simple, easy? We'll try and answer that as we go through the series. I think, I think we'll begin to answer that. But that is not... That is not typically what God does. And yet, even here, even in this space where God does show up in a really unique way, through an angelic visitation, through a burning bush, I think it's worth noticing. It doesn't seem exactly clear where the bush is in relationship to Moses. I don't know if you noticed that. I always probably watched all these movies, right? And like it's like right there, you know? But but what what we do know for sure is in verse 3 it says, Moses says to himself, I will go over and see this strange sight. And the word go over here actually like means to turn around or to make a detour, right? It's to, it's to shift in some way. Moses had to go out of his way in some way in order to get to the bush. Now, granted, it's a bush on fire. I don't know. Maybe you would have turned too. But I also wonder, like, what if Moses was, you know, man, it's getting late out here. I'm trying to get these sheep. We're trying to get back home to the wife. I'm sure she's got some good grub up. Like, I'm going to kick my feet up, watch the playoffs. Like, there's stuff going on, right? I'm like, I'm, I'm going somewhere. I have plans. Uh, not, we don't have to be interruptible, right? And, and I don't know about Moses. I mean, God seemed pretty uh, committed to this vision. Like, if he would have blown past the first burning bush, I don't know, maybe there would have been like a tower of smoke or another bush on fire. I'm not sure how many bushes there actually are in the desert in Saudi Arabia. Um, but like... 
maybe God would have continued to do something. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that, that Moses actually has to stop and be curious before God speaks. God waits, it says in verse 4. It says, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him. I wonder if this is like almost a bit of a test. Like, hey, Moses, I know back in the day you were a guy who was willing to be inconvenienced, who was willing to go out of your way, who was willing to put yourself in an uncomfortable space in order to, to really pay attention to things that were important to me. Are you still that guy? I don't know. I don't know what happens here in the story if Moses doesn't go over, but, but he does. And this, I think, is probably one of the main questions that I've been sitting with with this text and that I'd like to invite us to really consider. Friends, what does it look like for us to be people who see? What does it look like for us to be people who see? Ra'ah, who, who are willing to pay attention. Over the past couple of months, there's been a lot of celebration in my life. It's been a good time. We celebrated my birthday and then there was the Christmas holiday got two weddings in the last eight days or nine days. Uh, there's been a lot of reasons for, for joy and festivities, and uh, I know that's been true for many of you as well. And also, um, I imagine at least some of you will relate to this, it's felt kind of incongruent for me the last month or so. Like, there's some heavy stuff going on in the world, right? There's some stuff that's burdensome, some, some stuff that's grievous, you all know the situation. Uh, it's been 100 days now since Hamas' uh, horrific attacks on October 7th. And over that time, almost 24,000 Palestinians have been killed. Almost 70% of the dead are women and children. Unimaginable. And today, the entire region is in mourning. Israel is continuing to advance, probably this morning, probably right now. And as they do so, more people are dying, not only from bombs, but from the collapse of the medical system, the lack of food and housing. Over 80% of the 1.8 million people who live in Gaza have been displaced from their homes. 80%. And this is tragedy all over the place. Israeli families are continuing to wait and hope holding their breath, hoping that their relatives, that their friends who were taken captive would come home. Residents of Gaza are cringing under uh, the sounds of the whistle as they hear the bombs falling and, and ask, like, when's it coming for us? When's it coming for my family? The fear and trauma of these horrors is, of course, felt most presently in the Middle East, but it extends beyond even Israel, the West Bank, Lebanon, here in our community as well. I've spoke with Jewish neighbors who are concerned and pained about the wave of anti-Semitism that is rising and, and feeling hated and connected to the things that the Israeli government is doing. I've talked with Arab friends, and, and, and I know that many Muslims are, are feeling just a renewed uh, sense of fear and, and, and concern for the rising anti-Arab and Islamophobic uh, sentiments that are present, not just around the world, but here. Now look, I am not a foreign policy expert. I am not here to today tell you how to think about all of these things or understand what should happen. To be honest with you, man, I, I wish I knew how this should be resolved or how to make sense of this tragedy. I don't know how to make sense of the intersecting trauma of two peoples who carry deep scars and have been hurting one another for generations. 
When I sit with Jewish friends and neighbors, I can feel the scars of the Holocaust. Their resolve to have a place that they call home and to never again experience the atrocities that almost ended their people. When I sit with Arab friends, I feel the weight of the horrors of Nakba, the decades of displacement and marginalization that's been visited upon the Palestinian people. It's terrible, and answers are not easy to come by. There is much here that is complicated, and there's much here that's not. Both of these people deserve to live in peace. Both deserve a home. The killing of civilians and what's currently happening in Gaza is abhorrent. Just as the Hamas murder and rape of innocent civilians was also abhorrent. Under all of these atrocities and sides and things are a bunch of humans made in the image of God. Imago Dei, worthy of love and honor and dignity and respect. Over the past few months, I've just personally, uh, well, if I'm really honest, initially, I think I was not sure what to do with the pain of the situation and feeling pretty overwhelmed by it. But increasingly, I've been trying to move towards seeing, right? Just listening, seeing, understanding. And, and what's been clear to me is that, uh, you know, to, or to the degree that there have been things that have been clear to me, I've taken some actions. But mostly... If I'm honest, it doesn't feel like the actions that I've taken have made much of a difference or had much of an impact. Like so many circumstances in our life, this feels like just a, a horrific tragedy playing out that there's so little that we're helpless to really resolve or fix. Of course, many moments in our life is like this, right? Not just with Israel and Gaza. I like fixing things. I don't know about you. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the stereotype. There's this narrative, maybe you've heard it, about men, right? That anytime our partners begin sharing their experience, that immediately we jump in with like, here's a simple three-step solution to fixing that problem. Some people get side eye over here. I see it. I see you. I see you. All right. Somebody else has experienced this dynamic in the past. Look, I'd like to think that I've developed enough self-awareness to mostly interrupt that impulse to fix or solve things, although Allie might correct that. Uh, but regardless of how I show up, I can tell you that under the surface, it is very much still there. Like it is, I can feel the energy rising in me because when you start sharing with me how awful your parents are or how difficult this housemate is or how painful this job situation is, I, I can feel that anxiety rising in me too, right? I'm like, oh, well, that sounds, that sounds bad, Right? I don't like that. I would like for this feeling for you and for me to go away. And so, ugh, dislike, it's so easy to offer a solution. Right? See, because, man, offering solutions is brilliant. Like, it's so helpful. I'm being tongue-in-cheek here, just in case anybody misses me on this. All right, when you offer a solution, A, you have solved the problem for that person. B, you've displaced whatever responsibility you had for holding the thing that was painful to them back onto them. Now, if you don't solve it, like, I told you what to do, right? I don't have to worry about this. Now it's your thing to deal with. And so we give these, we give these solutions, we give these fixes, and of course, sometimes it's well-intentioned. We want to help. We see, we see a possibility. It's complicated. This is true with all of our motives. But very often... 
we're just trying to relieve the anxiety and the fear and the pain that we don't want to feel, that we don't want to sit with. By the way, you ladies can be guilty of this as well. It's not just a guy thing. Our tendency to give advice often has less to do with helping the other person than it does with us not having to sit with a pain. This is, I think, the same thing that we see in Moses' reaction. Right? He sees this situation going on, and the man goes off half-cocked. Right? He's got all these big emotions. Let's just fix it. Right? And it ends up killing somebody. Right? It doesn't solve anything for the Jewish people. Right? He's not fixing a problem. In fact, he just made things worse. How many of you can relate to this situation of, like, I'm really bothered by something. I don't have the emotional regulation to, like, keep myself in check. So I just jump in, in one way or another, whether advice or action, and end up both doing something that I regret and probably making the situation worse. Most of us have been there. I think Moses was there. This is how he got to encounter number one. See, if I can just figure out who to blame, it helps me not have to reckon with the pain. Right? If I can figure out, like, well, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys, then the people who are the bad guys, like, I can be less concerned somehow about their pain and their suffering. It's easier for me to dismiss. It's their fault. It should have happened. Of course, there were bad actors on both sides of this moment in Israel and Gaza and all others like it who are all too eager to spin self-serving narratives to make it simple to provide easy-to-answer solutions, right? Uh, simply packaged, like easy narratives. And, and friends, because it is uncomfortable to sit with the complex realities, we are so, like, we're so easy. We jump to those. We snatch them. We grab them because, man, it's just, it'd be nice to relieve the pain and the pressure that we feel. But whether we're talking about the deaths of thousands of Palestinian children the homeless crisis on mass and cast, uh, the fact that my friend is going through a divorce, or my own chronic health problem. These quick, easy, simplistic solutions don't serve us. They don't help us. Often, the problems that we're faced in life, the real problems, feel overwhelming. They're muddy, too. So instead of getting close, instead of going over to really see, we adopt a simple narrative, or offer a reductionistic solution. See, we fail to see because looking is painful. To behold what is really going on confronts us with our own limits and fears. It forces us into the work of lament and grief to wrestle with the awfulness of how the world is sometimes and how out of control that we feel. Especially when the problems, as so often is the case, don't lend themselves to simple or tidy solutions. Sitting with brokenness is so painful, we often choose to look away. But friends, there, there is another way. While I was in seminary, I had the immense privilege of serving at a church on Chicago's west side and being mentored by an incredible man, uh, Pastor Daryl Safor. I have to tell you stories about Pastor Daryl sometime. Uh, he was quite the character. But there's uh, one moment in our relationship, one story that really stands out to me uh, from the ministry there. There was one time where this woman came to him and she was behind on her utility bills. And she said, hey, Pastor Daryl, can, can you help me out with this? 
Now, the church helped people out with these kinds of things all the time, had helped this particular person out in the past, very open to taking action and often did so. But in this particular instance, because of a, a, a series of reasons, uh, Pastor Darrell wasn't able to help. He didn't have it. He couldn't solve the problem for the lady. But he didn't turn the woman away, and I'll never forget his response. He said, ma'am, this month I don't know of any way to keep your lights on but I'll come sit with you in the dark. I'll come sit with you in the dark. Friends, sometimes we don't have to have solutions to problems if we're willing to enter into the suffering of people and simply be present. When we take time, like Moses, to actually turn aside and to see what's going on, to really behold, we can encounter the voice of God. We can be moved by the pain of injustice, and we can oftentimes begin a journey towards calling. Like Jesus, we must press in to listen with curiosity and compassion. And friends, I believe so often we miss the ways in which God is calling us, the ways he's inviting us, the the things he's stirring in our heart, uh, the ways he's laboring to bring us along on a journey with him to, to bring beauty and goodness and justice to the world because oftentimes God is speaking in moments of pain and candidly, we don't want to deal with that. And so we hurry past. We keep it moving. Friends, what would it look like for you this morning to go over and see? Look, not every problem in the world is yours to take on. If you really sit with a problem, I don't know. Maybe you'll have an option to actually help in some really concrete ways and solve something. Sometimes that happens. It does eventually happen for Moses in some significant ways. Sometimes people just need you to sit with them in the dark. Not every problem in the world is yours to take on, but, but sometimes God places a burning bush in our path, and we have to be willing to take a detour in order to hear what it is that God wants to say. There is so much more to unpack in Moses' story. We're going to continue doing so over the next few weeks. But this morning, I just want to stop here. I want to stop with this invitation to really to see. As God sees, as, as Moses sees the suffering of his people, as he sees the bush and says, yes, I'll take a detour. Moses was willing to see. He was willing to be inconvenient to see what was happening with his neighbor and to hear from God. Are we? Are we? Friends, where are you at in this story this morning? I'm going to invite the band to go ahead and come on up as we move into a time of reflection. Where are you, friends, in this story? Maybe you have been so busy at the palace or with the sheep that you just haven't had the time to encounter pain all that much or God all that much. Do you find yourself this morning just in a place where you're kind of insulated, kind of preoccupied? There's a lot going on in life. Maybe this morning you feel like Moses in his youth, brash and bold, brimming with confidence that I can take it on, I can fix the problem, I can dive in. And you haven't really stepped to necessarily listen or learn for that long. You haven't really listened to God about it. Maybe you find yourself taking things into your own hands and making a mess this morning. Or maybe you feel like Moses in his latter chapters. Maybe you're like, I feel old and washed. Like there was a time I tried some things, 
but now you're just comfortable in that cynicism. It doesn't work out. Yeah, those people over there, just wait, just wait. They'll see what happens. I'm going to keep my distance. I'm going to stay comfortable over here because, man, when you jump into that mess, it's, you could get alienated. You can get isolated. Maybe you're over here in a space of cynicism, either feeling like it's not worth it or even like, man, I don't have what it takes anymore. I'm just a dirty old shepherd wandering through the wilderness. Friends, wherever you're at this morning, I believe that God is still speaking. What does God want to see you today? As we enter this time of reflection, uh, the carpets here are going to be open. These are spaces for you to come and to pray. Of course, you can always pray right in your seat. I'll be up front if you want to spend some time praying for me. But I'd invite you to just ask God this question. God, what what do you want me to see this morning? Have there been some odd, hard to explain things popping up in your life that you've just pushed past? Maybe there is a place in your life where you've noticed a a burning bush of one kind or another that seems uh, like God might be trying to get your attention. There may be something for you to learn or discover or perhaps something that you even know that just has bothered you, but you haven't really slowed down. The homeless guy you pass on the way to work the person in your family that's secretly battling addiction, the single mom who's your neighbor. As we enter this time of worship, I don't have a crystal ball for you, but God is still speaking. So I'd invite you to just consider, God, what do you want to say? What is it that you want me to see?